Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Books and Music, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am Emily Allen, your host for this episode. For our conversation today, I am speaking with Dr. Horace Maxiel and Dr. Kristen Turner, who you might also know from the MBN, um, about their book, uh, Race and Gender in the Western Music History Survey, published by Rutledge in 2022. So a little bit more about the book. Um, Race and Gender in the Western Music History Survey, a teacher's guide, provides concrete information and approaches that will help instructors include women and people of color in the typical music history survey course and the foundational music theory classes. This book provides a reconceptualization of the principles that shape the decisions instructors should make when crafting the syllabus. It offers new perspectives on canonical composers and pieces that take into account musical, cultural, and social context where women and people of color are present. Secondly, it suggests new topics of study and pieces by composers whose work fits into a more inclusive narrative of music history. A thematic approach parallels the traditional chronological sequencing in Western music history classes. Three themes include people and communities that suffer from various kinds of exclusion, locales and locations, forms and factions, responses and reception. Each theme is designed to uncover a different cultural facet that is often minimized in traditional music history classrooms, but which if explored lead to topics in which other perspectives and people can be included organically in the curriculum while not excluding canonical composers. So that's the book. Um, A little bit about our guest. Um, Dr. Horace Maxiel is Associate Professor of Music Theory at Baylor University. His primary Interests are the concert music of Black composers, music semiotics, and gospel music. His research has appeared in journals such as Perspectives of New Music, American Music, the Journal of the Society for American Music, and Black Music Research Journal. And our second guest is Dr. Kristen Turner, who is a lecturer in the Music and Honors Departments at North Carolina State University. Her work centers on issues of race, gender, and class in American popular culture at the turn of the 20th century. Her research has appeared in collected editions in scholarly journals, including the Journal of the American Musicological Society, the Journal of the Society for American Music, American Studies, and Musical Quarterly. So thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Awesome. 
All right. Um, so let's get started with a little bit of background here. So um, Kristen, I'll start with you on this question. Can you tell us how you came to um, work on this book? Sure. Um, I guess around 2015, um, maybe a little later, uh, Kira Thurman, who teaches history, she's an associate professor now at University of Michigan, reached out to me and asked me if I would co-author something with her on diversity in the music history classroom that we wrote for Musicology Now, which is the American Musicological Society's blog. And it was very commonsensical. It just said, here are six ways that you can immediately diversify your classroom. And that got a lot of traction. We got a lot of great feedback from that. And at one point, um, Jim Davis, who was who is the editor of a series at Rutledge on pedagogy, contacted me and asked us to write a book that sort of expanded upon what we had done, what Kira and I had done in that um, in that blog post. And um, Kira was not able at that point to write uh, this book with me. She's primarily a historian. And so um, she needed to concentrate on some other things at that point. So I uh, went to Tammy Kernodal, who is a good friend of mine and a musicologist as well, and said, help, I can't write this book by myself. I don't, you know, when you're talking about something that is uh, going across all periods and uh, we want and, um, you know, wanted to think about as many different aspects of the Western music history survey type courses as possible. There was no way I could do that by myself. And she suggested Horace might be a great um, person to work with. I already knew Horace just a little bit and she turned out to be absolutely right. <laughs> and I should let Horace tell you how she he got involved. Uh, yes, it was basically uh, Tammy was the the jail that kind of put us all uh, put us together. And I think it was at a SAM meeting, uh, the one in New Orleans. I can't put the date, maybe 2018, 2019, somewhere around there, uh, where we, you know, had lunch and discussed it. I think it was at a Vietnamese restaurant in, in New Orleans. Go figure. Uh, and, and so we, you know, we talked about the project and the idea. I was like, I think I'm OK, but you do know I'm a theorist, right? Uh, and of course, Kristen said, yeah, of course I know. And so uh, from there, we just kind of talked about it. But I also found the project intriguing because I struggled in music history uh, as an undergraduate. And I just wish that uh, there was a little bit more that could have been done to make it a little more interesting to me. So the idea of the sequence as it was given to me as an undergrad, I was like, if there's anything that I could even try to do to try to add a little more spice or flavor to that, uh, let's let's try it and see what, what comes out of it. And the conversation happened, and then, of course, COVID hit. But the 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 the, the seat was already there, and we just watered it over the over the COVID pause. Uh, I'll add that I, by the time we start working on this book, I'd been teaching for almost twenty five years, and almost every year I would teach the Western Music History Survey, and I had gone from teaching it exactly the way that it was taught to me, which was the most traditional way possible. I think the only women we covered were Hildegard of Bingen and maybe you know, uh, Clara Schumann, no people of color whatsoever. And um, by the time Horace and I started working on the book, I was teaching it very differently, but wanted to teach it even more differently. And one of the things that I found was that I just didn't know enough. Like, I, And I did not have the time to sit down and research 
just gobs of material to come up with new things I could say to my classroom. Unless, of course, you're writing a book and then you don't have a choice. <laughs> and, and then you said you would ever do that. So I felt like um, I felt like the teacher that I wanted to help with, that I wanted to be able to teach that class better than I had taught it. And um, and I needed this information that we try to present in this book to help me do that. Yeah, I think that you both brought some very complimentary perspectives to this um, theorist, musicologist, what you wanted as a student and what you wanted on the other end as a teacher. So I think that's really awesome that you all were able to collaborate in that way and really make this um, a great resource. So as you kind of came together with your different types of expertise, um, what was the process of working on this book like through that journey? So if Kristen, you maybe want to kick us off. Um, well, as Horace said, we met at a, a Vietnamese restaurant. I think it was the 2019 Sam because COVID hit not to, you know, like basically a year later. Um, and he was the one who really came up with um, the themes. And um, we had sort of figured out together how we wanted each chapter to look. And, and we never really looked back. I, I'm not sure that it ever really changed from the time that we started. So that each each period starts with an introduction that tries to recenter the, the typical introduction away from um, just always centering the canonic composers, but thinking about other issues. Um, and then, uh, then there's two lesson plans, a theory and a sort of more historical one, and then a bunch of bibliographies. And we decided we were going to do that right from the start. And it was so, it was such an easy process. Like we just had this conversation. We figured it out in like 30 minutes over pho, you know, <laughs> so it was, it was not bad. It, it, it was really, it was such a joy and so easy because we, we realized, at least on my side, we realized that we really had a lot of the same ideas and it, you know, we weren't ever arguing about what we were going to do. So Horace, what else would you say? I would say uh, with regard to process, really thinking about uh, a, a, a thematic way of teaching music history, because I was also thinking about conversations that I've been hearing about different ways to teach music history where some programs might just do a, a not necessarily a period course but a, a highly specialized course for a year and students could pick and choose which ones they wanted to take to create their own uh, thing there with regard to um, the music history sequence or what have you and then of course there's also this traditional view and this chron this chronological view which which has a lot of uh, which makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways. And so I was really thinking about ways to, uh, how can I thematically tie some of these things together? Uh, what would have made more sense to me as an undergraduate? And that was, for me, it was just that that thing because for me, music history was just, it was rough. Um, me and dates don't get along that well. And so it's just like, okay, this happened. And so instead of this very, um, sterile okay these are the things that happened in this period and you need to know this composer this composer this composer and then let's move to the next page and, and do the same thing and i was like well where's the music in that i'm getting the history but i'm not getting the music and so um i think the themes uh, uh the thematic approach at least uh, set up a sort of lyricism for me uh to to try to to, to try to tie some things together uh and of course Kristen was was on board with that idea i didn't think it would fly you know 
talking to your traditional music history teacher who's been doing it for so long. Uh, but the whole idea of this lyrical approach to to things that were otherwise uh, sterile, at least for me, uh, fell fell on 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 good ground. I'll say in terms of just writing, we were never in the same room. We didn't see each other again until what was over a year after the book had been published. Yes. Um, and of course, part of that was we were, it was during COVID, but it was completely online. We would call each other every couple of months and have the like four or five months. And we'd say, okay, now what are you going to write? And we would decide what we were going to do next, apportion out the sort of the, who was going to do what and say, we were going to have it done by this date and it would get done. And, you know, I mean, it was, it yeah. was, um, was a pretty easy process right. we read each other's stuff and right. so that there was a second reader and i have a writing group i've been with for a long time and they read some of it as well so and horace brought it to some people so that we could have a, you know more pairs of eyes on it but it was a very it, i you know i would be happy to write more books with horace because it was a very easy process and i would say once we got a handle on what the first chapter uh, looked like. I think the first one was the classical one. It was. We put scare quotes around that. Oh, you can't see the scare quotes, but I just <laughs> did that. Uh, the um, Yeah, so once we figured out the, the form of that and how what it would look like and what we wanted to have in it, uh, I would, would say the, the I did uh, say that the, the there was a non-negotiable for me, and it was that we had to have scores inside the book that was the only thing that i said well i have we have to do that because if there's you know if there are accompanying anthologies that go along with all the traditional texts then at least those musical uh, those full scores could serve uh as a mini anthology at least uh, for the topics that were being presented i love that this is so inspiring here as a junior scholar that collaboration is great so i will uh definitely aspire to get on y'all's level with the co-authoring process and I think that I appreciate you all clarifying kind of the organization a little bit. You know, I love the way, Horace, you put it in terms of its lyrical structure and bringing your theorist um, hat to the table by emphasizing scores. Um, so I think, and then, you know, Kristen's expertise as a pedagogue and um, having that musicology side. So I think that that's really shows throughout the book. And um, listeners, just to kind of recap the themes that they were talking about are the three following locales and locations, forms and factions, responses and reception. So they use that um, across the different chapters, but it's still kind of user friendly for the chronological approach as well. So they kind of played out um, both chronological and thematic across the book. So it's very user friendly, which I really appreciated. So I'm looking forward to um, using this resource <laughs> the next time I... Uh, teach this class, which actually leads me maybe to my next question. And I think you all were kind of getting at this a little bit, but, you know, how do you envision instructors using this book in there? You were kind of talking about how you could maybe use it with other anthologies, um, but how do you envision instructors using this book? Are there um, any pedagogical approaches that you have tried um, that made their way into this book? Um, maybe we can start with uh, Kristen on this one. Um, what I have always imagined is that anyone who's teaching Western classical music, not just a not just the traditional freshman survey, but just sort of any course that's mostly classical music, I hope what they do is, you know, literally look at the, the bibliographies and see 
the incredible wealth of information that's out there. I was very surprised actually how much research has been done um, on women and people of color, even in early music, for instance, which we both thought was going to be difficult, but turned out there was plenty there, at least for teaching purposes, right? I mean, there's something really different between articles and things that are helpful for teachers and students and stuff that's really more scholarly based. Like what teachers need is stuff that gives you basic information and allows, I think, and allows the teacher to incorporated into what they're already doing, right? So if you look at the bibliography, you're like, wow, I would love to teach about choral music in Mexico. Here is an article about choral music in Mexico. And there's only one, right? We don't have room for five. You can, you know, the teacher can read about it and go to other sources from that, from the, um, from that article if they want to, but know that we've picked an article that we think would be good for teaching um, and that, is um, that hopefully will be enough information to teach a class on without much else, right? Because most people who come to this know enough to be able to say, oh, now that I know about this, I'll slot it in here. Um, and um, we also have a bibliography of pieces with um, a score that's pretty easily available and a recording because it's nice to have both, right? But actually that takes an enormous amount of time. That took more time than anything else we did was those bibliographies. You can't see it, but Horace is shaking his head. It took forever because there's an actually, it, it's one or the other. It's very rarely both. Um, so I think for me, I hope that people will do that. We'll start with the bibliographies. The second thing, is if they look at our lesson plans, I mean, of course, it's great. If they want to just use them, I've had people tell me that that's what they've done. They want to just get through something quickly and they're just using all of the all of those. And that's, that's 10 lessons right there that's out there. But I think, I think we're both hoping that it would, would also serve as a repository of ideas. Oh, I really don't want to teach this piece, but oh, but I could do it like this. Like I could do the research to take this approach or, um, you know, I could use the stuff that's in um, a theory lecture for this other piece that I have access to um, or whatever, so that hopefully it will spur some creativity as well on the part of teachers. I, I, one reason that I liked the themes is that it allows teachers to, I hope, to think about multiple ways to approach the same material. So uh, I don't know if you're looking at, um, at if you look at like a one of the lesson plans at the end, we go through and um, discuss each theme with basic, it's basically the same information and it's about the same pieces, but it's like, well, yes, you could approach it this way or this way or this way, right? So that um, the idea is that um, every, every piece of material that one uses in a class can be an opening into so many different ways to think about music. It doesn't have to be just what we said. It could be a lot of other things. Um, the lesson plans also have these further considerations, which are the same sort of thing. Sometimes these are things I've tried. Other times they're not. I, you know, of course, I'll have to speak to the theory lessons that he taught. But 
um, the idea really was, well, maybe you could do this in another lesson, you maybe on a totally different topic, but here's an idea, you know, maybe you want to talk about music scenes, but not in relationship to Florence Price and Aaron Copeland, which is where we talked about in the book, maybe you want to do it for 18th century Paris, or I don't know, 12th century Florence or something, uh, whatever it might be, or 21st century, wherever you live. But the idea is here, here's something that you might be able to do. Yeah, uh, that hit basically everything. The other piece that I thought about uh, at the book's uh, inception was actually the graduate theory review. And I thought, what a fun way to learn or relearn or refamiliarize yourself uh, uh, with the large body of information that folks expect you to keep and spit out uh, and so on and so on. And so I actually thought about perhaps what if graduate surveys were taught thematically? What if the graduate survey was locales and location? And then you just run through that chronologically, but really focusing on locales and locations, using the book or using locales and locations for other canonical works, uh, or using forms and factions as a theme for an entire semester, or you know, responses and receptions for an entire semester. And so the book also can function in that way to give you starting places to, to you know, and lessons and from a canonical and non-canonical composer, but also maybe thinking about other composers that could be approached that way in the given time periods. So that way you can kind of have some, chrono some, some chronological basis, but not even have students not even think about it as a as a chronological course, uh, but really thinking about it thematically uh, and and using those themes as a way to tie together a full blown you know semester, still hitting on all of the things that need to be learned and need to be retained, but through a totally different lens. Uh, and so that was uh, so on top of everything Kristen just outlined with regard to uh, teachers and the resources there, but just the the idea of presenting an entire semester without saying graduate music survey, you know, or graduate music history survey. Let's just call it locales and locations. And then we'll just do, we'll, we'll do all the work under that umbrella. That's really cool. And I think I'm glad you brought up the graduate um, survey, you know, because I think about, for instance, like for schools that have like big ethnomusicology programs, there's like a lot of international students sometimes that come into these more traditional conservatory spaces. So I think that would be a really great way for people from really any kind of cultural context to find something to latch onto and maybe relate to more that way. Um, so I, I see what you're saying. That would be really, I think, a really creative way to do that. And I appreciate you, Kristen, mentioning that you talked about how you've heard back from people about how they've been using this too. So that was going to be my other question was, you know, have you, how have you heard people doing that? So I'm really glad that you know, it sounds like you all, um, and from what I was seeing in the book, there's structure, but there's also a lot of flexibility with the book, which I think is a really great um, model and really great tool that people um, will hopefully utilize. And I, that leads me to um, what's probably going to be my last formal question, but is there anything else about this book that you feel like you want to touch on um, that we haven't already brought up? Um, we can start with Horace on this one. Uh, I I would like to say that uh, hopefully the that music theory and music history aren't really seen as two different things. 
yes, there are two different approaches, but we're still talking about music in different ways. I mean, the the quote-unquote theory lessons, if you want to call them those, you know, uh, there's a little bit of stuff in there, but it's not jargon, uh, and it's not heavy on jargon and all that other stuff. I had to resist myself. I had to rewrite a couple of things because, yes, it would have been much easier to just say this prolongation of the dominant and da-da-da-da-da-da-da, but uh, sometimes you don't want to get lost in jargon, and so maybe... Um, a more granular approach to certain moments in the score was what I was after there. And so to the degree that you want to lean into those moments and maybe direct, uh, maybe have a more goal-directed listening before you enter a piece. Uh, and so that's why some of the portions of the lesson have nothing to do with theory questions at all, but actually cultural considerations that you might ask uh, around the piece. What are some contextual things that are going around this moment? And maybe there are ways to make connections between what's happening orally and what might be happening socially with that composer at that particular time, uh, particularly with the, the Burley and moving on into the 20th century. Uh, so, you know, to the degrees that the score, oral things, a little bit of analytical jargon can inform our reading of quote unquote history or historiography or however we want to frame that, uh, all the better. I think it's all things working in the same direction and we don't have to be so siloed uh, in order to get students to get what we want them to get. Yeah, that's a really great point. I think that makes the collaborative approach y'all took with this even more fruitful um, thinking about that way. So yeah, thank you, Horace, for that. Um, Kristen, do you have anything you want to add as well? Well, I have to say that the, I think the book is so much better because Horace is a theorist. Um, I am not a theorist at all. And so I learned a lot from the lessons that Horace wrote. And I think um, he has certainly inspired me to be better about talking about theory to my students. I don't work with music majors, so who don't have, and most of my students will never take music theory. So, um, there's some limitations into what I can do in my own classroom practice, but I think, I think, I hope that having lessons that really get into the notes is helpful to people. And, and for those lessons, those are all pieces that are not, not in any anthology that we were aware of. So the point is that here are pieces that are not even in, you know, the women, there's like women's anthologies of music, like they're not in those either, the whole, and they're certainly not in the traditional anthologies that go with the textbooks. So the idea is like everything about this is supposed to be, be a new resource. Um, so that introductions, for instance, we were very careful that we have sort of an overview and then we go through the three themes and each theme has a different um uh, uses a different case study in the theme. The idea being that's, that's three more places, three more types of music that or, or topics that someone might use. Because honestly, that paragraph is enough to start with, right? You only have to talk in a music history survey class, you only have to be able to talk about something well for about 30 minutes, right? And then there's listening to music and answering questions, right? And then, so you really, you don't, I think, I think sometimes teachers think they have to have this incredibly deep knowledge. Like I can't talk about this unless I know everything there is to know about that topic. And that is, that's not true. Like you really just need 30 minutes. Right. And, and all, I think musicians are trained to be able to look at music and understand it. And if you have a little bit more topic subject matter understanding, then you can teach about a lot of things. You can't teach about it for long, but you can teach about it long enough 
for a class or two, right? And that this book is really about like, okay, here's enough to teach about it for a class or two, right? Um, so, I, and I, the other thing was, um, I think that uh, the book is, is designed to remind us that there's, that, that musicologists, at least, we tend to think of the canon, many of us as sort of a bad thing, right? Like, oh God, not more Beethoven, not more this, right? But, but I, and maybe that's true as for young scholars who want to look at new things or whatever, like there's the scholarly part where we're trying to sort of interrogate the canon and maybe even tear it down and all of those things. But in the classroom, we really wanted to show that it's still important. The canon is still important. Like you cannot teach the 19th century without Beethoven, like, or the rest of 19th century music does not make sense because Beethoven was very powerful and important to every composer who lived during, you know, in the 19th century it does not matter what their background was, right? So we, we really wanted to encourage people not to think of this as being um, subtractive, but additive. Right. And that um, but that the other thing that I hear teachers worry about is I don't want to be tokenistic. Right. I, and, um, you know, I don't want people to think, well, now I've done my person of color for the 14, you know, for the 18th century and now I'm done. Right. But no, that's not that's another great thing about the themes um, is that the whole point is if you think about music in a holistic way and you think about it as composers and pieces and performers and patrons and where they played and who they played for and what people said about it, you cannot leave out women and people of color. Like you can't. You can leave out white women and people of color if all you care about is a very small amount of music made in a very small number of places by a very small number of people for a very particular audience, then you can leave out anybody but white men. But if you think about it more holistically, you have to, there, there needs to be canonic pieces there because they were important and those people are important, but there also are all these other people and all this other amazing music and all these other places to talk about. And it, I was really struck by Horace saying that music history was hard for him, right? I think that's, I think a lot of people find that. But if you can come in and say, look at this cool thing they were doing in the Philippines in the 1500s or, you know, whatever, or Mexico in, uh, in the 1700s or whatever, I think, I don't think that you have to share a cultural background with someone to say, wow, that is so much more interesting than not again, we're looking at Italy, <laughs> like, you know, um, and and I think it does, and it's exciting, I don't know, as a teacher, it's exciting to me to be able to share that, because I get tired of teaching about Italy, too. Yeah, I think what I also was struck, and I don't think I highlighted this um, earlier, but it's both your perceptions as students, too, that you bring to the table. Like, even still, from what you were saying, like, it sounds like you learned a lot, even just working on this book, um, and then Horace's expertise as a student, and you know, um, looking back on that. So I think it's great that both ends of the spectrum here, both the teacher's perspective, but also the learner's perspective was brought into this um, text. So I appreciate um, you all bringing your expertise to this book and sharing this body of knowledge with us. Um, and I hope that listeners 
um, both students and teachers will consult this and maybe think about um, how to, you know, revitalize the music history survey. So, um, but I just wanted to thank you both, Horace and Kristen, for talking with me today. This was a real pleasure. Thank you. It was fun. Yes, thank you. It was great. Yeah. And um, listeners, just to give you a quick uh, recap, this was an interview for the New Books and Music channel um, with Dr. Horace Maxiel and Dr. Kristen Turner about their book, Race and Gender in the Western Music History Survey, which was published by Rutledge in 2022. This is Emily Allen. I'll catch you next time here on the New Books Network.